Well, welcome to our final Herbert Smith Freehills Australian M&A podcast for 2019. I'm Robert Nicholson and I'm joined by Sam Kings, Jason Jordan and Cam Jamshidi. And we're going to talk about just a few of the key developments that have occurred uh, during 2019 in the M&A field in Australia, which we haven't already covered in other podcasts. Bit of a wrap-up of the year. We've got a few topics. We're talking about board spills. Uh, We're talking about interested directors and what recommendations they make. Stub equity, uh, dispatch of takeover documents, disclosure of equity derivatives and reverse break fees. And we're starting with Sam. Sam, there's been a spate of panel applications about situations where shareholders have sought to remove directors from office. Uh, There's been a lot of them this year. Take us through that. First of all, Robert, g'day. Thanks for having me. Uh, You're right. In 2019, the panel considered six matters involving potential board spills. Overall, I think it's fair to describe the panel's approach in these cases as relatively hands-off. In none of them did the panel make orders that affected the outcome of the shareholder vote, nor did the panel even make orders that would enable the applicants to delay the vote while they could marshal more support. In other words, no board matter in 2019 was really affected by the fact it came before the panel. Now, that's not to say the panel hasn't done anything, Robert. In Aguirre Resources, the panel made a declaration of unacceptable circumstances in relation to an application that a group of shareholders who had requisitioned a shareholders meeting to spill the board were part of an undisclosed association. That is, they hadn't lodged a substantial holding notice. There, the panel ordered the relevant shareholders, who between them held about 12.5% of the shares, to release a substantial holding notice. Now, Robert, in the end, no big deal, really. The board still, the board spill still succeeded. Yeah, so do you think the panel is, uh, I mean, they've been pretty hands-off in this. Do you think they've been a bit too much of a shrinking violet? Have they taken the right approach here, Sam? Well, it's a good question, Robert. I think the hands-off approach that the panel's taken is the right one, and I think what it does do is it reflects the intended directive of the panel, namely to be facilitative and not unnecessarily interfere with commercial matters that are undertaken. In the context of board spills, Robert, I think it's also important to note that if the alleged associates hold less than 20% of the shares, then any agreement between them is in effect legitimate, as the panel determined in Aguirre. Even if the alleged associates hold more than 20% of the shares and enter into a voting agreement, the panel will only make a declaration of unacceptable circumstances where it thinks it's needed on public interest grounds. Now, Robert, that's obviously in addition to substantial holding notice disclosure. I think it's important to note the Australian Whiskey Holdings case. In that case, the panel not only declined to conduct proceedings based on the fact they didn't feel there was sufficient probative material to demonstrate a breach of 606, but also noted, as a number of other panels had noted, that the applicant's delay in making the application increased the panel's reluctance to interfere with the legitimate rights of shareholders to exercise their voting rights. I think from that, Robert, the message should be clear to applicants. If you think you've got a case, get on with it. Delaying, perhaps with a view to putting pressure on the panel for an outcome, isn't going to help you. Yeah, I think we've seen that in some other contexts as well. Uh, Thanks for that, Sam. Let's get on to uh, directors, interested directors, and uh, what they do in the context of a scheme of arrangement. This is where a director has a personal interest in the outcome of the scheme. 
How do companies typically handle this in terms of what that director says in the scheme booklet and so forth? Sure. So to set the scene a little bit, the law requires scheme booklets to include a recommendation from each target director as to whether shareholders should vote in favour of the scheme or not. However, there's a little bit of tension between this this legal obligation and the court's views on what target directors who have an interest, as you pointed out, in the, the outcome of the scheme, and I guess a classic example is a director who's going to be paid a bonus if it's implemented, should do. In June this year, Justice Farrell raised concerns about a unanimous board recommendation to approve the scheme where the managing director was to receive a $1.7 million cash bonus in relation to the proposed Gazelle scheme of arrangement. Despite approving it, Her Honour stated that interested directors should exercise caution in making recommendations and, in her view, generally should not do so. She also required that the scheme will make more prominent disclosure of the managing director's bonus payment. Similar concerns were raised in another case, Robert, re-rule code, a case that was heard shortly after Gazelle. Now, I think it's important to, to highlight that these concerns were noteworthy at the time, given that an almost identically structured scheme had been approved by the Supreme Court of Victoria in the case of re-SMS, very much around the same time. In that case, Justice Robson held that it was appropriate for a managing director to make his recommendation despite their interest and some concerns from ASIC, as they were, to use Justin, Justice Robson's language, the main moving force behind that company. Yeah, so he has a view that their their view is relevant to shareholders and there's no reason they shouldn't hear what it is. It reminds me a little of a case many, many years ago where John Elliott's uh, Harlan Holdings made a bid for Elders, a very large bid at the time, and he was executive chairman of Elders and uh, wanted to make a recommendation that shareholders reject the offer because it was for an inadequate price. So you can see it even going the other way. So uh, look, since those few cases, there's been a couple more, Sam, haven't there? Yeah, there has, Robert. And the most recent is, uh, well, I'll I'll step back through the most two recent. Kidman Resources, uh, again, a proposed scheme. It came up in front of Justice Justice O'Callaghan and there, there was disagreement with Justice Farrell's concerns in Gazal and affirmation of the decision in re-SMS. That is, emphasising that a director's obligation to make a recommendation applies irrespective of any contingent benefit they might receive. Now, this position was confirmed by Justice Black in the Villawood scheme. Yeah, so where do you come out on this, Sam? What should a director do in this situation, given there's some conflicting authorities here? Sure. So... I think, Robert, the current prevailing view is that absent relatively unique circumstances, directors should ordinarily make a recommendation to their shareholders. Justice Farrell's and ASIC's ASIC's objections certainly have merit. However, the current approach is to address them by way of fulsome disclosure in the scheme booklet. And look, given, given the recent attention, directors should obviously tread carefully, but we think there's definitely a path through with that approach. Great. Thanks very much, Sam. Uh, look, we'll move on to stub equity. Uh, this is uh, we're going to talk to Jason Jordan about this, and it's a situation where a bidder seeks to give investors an ongoing exposure to the business or the opportunity to take that up by um, investing in an unlisted entity that will hold the asset after the deal. Now, Jason Essex expressed some concerns about this. Take us through that. Yeah, thanks, Robert, and thanks for having me. Look. 
Asking's concerns relate to the recent use of Australian companies for sub-equity deals, um, both proprietary companies and public companies where a custodian structure has been used to keep the number of shareholders below the 50-member threshold where the takeover rules apply. And ASIC's concerns are really that retail investors who take up the sub-equity are missing out on certain rights available for widely held Australian public companies, and they're really proposing to effectively ban the use of those Australian vehicles. Yeah, and uh, why is that? I mean, um, it, it's a bit of an awkward proposition for a retail investor, isn't it? I mean, how do you get out? How do you realise your investment if you only hold a small number of shares? Yeah, look, it is, it is tricky. I mean, there is no active market as such for, for these sub-equity vehicles and it's limited to no liquidity. Um, so, you know, retail investors are basically exiting when the bidder decides to exit. So you can see why it is unattractive for retail investors generally. All right. So how's the market handling this? Um, so ASIC's put out a consultation period. We're still unclear as to whether or not ASIC's going to push ahead with its proposal. Um, you know, stub equity generally, there's always been a significant amount of disclosure around the risks, as you mentioned, including liquidity. Um, and directors really either don't recommend the stub equity option or recommend that shareholders take the cash positively. Um, what we've seen on the back of the consultation has been a couple of things. We've seen the use of foreign script in low regulation countries such as the Cayman Islands and Bermuda. And we've also seen stub equity being offered just to a couple of shareholders or a certain group, which has meant a couple of different classes and a couple of different shareholder votes needing to get up. All right, good. Well, look, uh, another topic. Uh, you, you've um, uh, uh, claimed a breakthrough <laughs> in emailing, uh, in dispatching takeover documents by email um, in a large transaction. This must have saved an awful lot of trees and quite a bit of water. You use a lot of water in uh, making paper. Uh, it's such an obvious idea, Jason. Why has this been difficult before? Yeah, I'll first um, attribute the uh, credit to, to Rod, otherwise I'll be in a bit of strife. Um, so I'll start with that. Um, yeah, look, you'd think that from an email perspective, you know, email has been around for a little while. Um, and certainly in schemes for many years, there's been orders granted to dispatch booklets via email. You know, we've seen annual reports and the like also be dispatched via email. But for takeovers, the legislation's still old school. Um, it still only allows you to send your takeover documents by post or, in the cour- or by courier. Um, and whenever a bidder or a target tries to think about emails, they run into a couple of issues. The bidder doesn't have access to the target shareholder email addresses, and the target runs out of time to try and get ASIC relief, given it only has 15 days to get its target statement out once the bidder statement's been sent. So there are a couple of issues that's made it really tough in the past. Okay, thanks for that. And... Uh uh, do you think there's any prospect of getting um, broad, more broad-ranging relief for just straight takeovers where there's no scheme in, in the future? Um, it, it's going to be tricky, I think. I mean, ASIC relief will be required, and really it's going to depend on whether or not they get through that privacy concern around email addresses. Um, it'll be interesting to see how it pans out, but I think for recommended takeovers, we should be able to see that happen. Good. Well, thanks, Jason. Uh, we'll move on to Cam Jamshidi. Yeah, Robert. We're going to start with uh, a topic about equity derivatives. This is where uh, a bidder, or it may be an, another player in a uh, control-type environment, uh, acquires securities which give them an uh, economic interest in, in securities in the, in the company. Uh, there's been a fair bit of attention to this topic this year. Um, 
Just run us through where that's at now. Um, yeah, so it's, re- it's been quite interesting, Robert. Um, I should just clarify, the focus has really been around cash-settled equity derivatives. So this is where the taker of the position doesn't have a right to call on the underlying securities, but has just got an economic exposure to those underlying securities. Um, and so the takeovers panel has launched a consultation process, which actually come to an end now, but launched it this year in respect of guidance note 20 um, on equity derivatives. Really, the focus of that uh, consultation process is to bring Australia up to speed with the rest of the globe in terms of how we disclose um, those equity derivatives position. Currently under guidance note 20, uh, if a, ho- a holder of a long position in an equity derivative uh, has 5% or more, in the context of a control transaction, the panel would expect dis- disclosure. And why? Well, why are they worried about this? Kid? Yeah, I think the key focus, Robert, is uh, the expectation is when a, a, a taker takes its position, the writer is expected to go out and probably hedge its position. So all of a sudden you've got a writer out there in the market that's put its foot on, on a substantial stake. That has the potential to affect liquidity or free float in the market. Um, and really that's what the panel is now focused on is how does that then go on to impact um, the availability of stock in, in control transactions, for example. So basically, the the new guidance note 20 that the panel is proposing or consulting on effectively says, irrespective of whether it's a control transaction or not, they would expect a taker of a 5% or more uh, cash-settled equity derivative to disclose that to the market, to ensure that the market is fully informed uh, in respect of, of that stake. Yeah, and this is really just falling into line with most other uh, international jurisdictions. Right? Exactly right. So I think the UK, Hong Kong, New Zealand would all expect um, the holder of a cash-settled equity derivative to, to disclose that to the market. Um, and you think about some of the interesting fact sets we've had in the past. You think about um, Packer having taken a stake in Echo Entertainment. I think Packer had a 4.9% stake also had another 10% in equity, uh, cash-settled equity derivatives that was not disclosed to the market. And that was in a context where I think Genting had just under 20% of, of stock. So all of a sudden, you've got a lot of free float that's effectively been um, held uh, under derivatives that the market was not aware of. Um, and under this new guidance that the panel is pr- proposing, that would have been disclosed. The full position economic mm. exposure would have been disclosed to the market. All right. Uh, thanks for that. And we'll just finish with one final topic, which is reverse break fees. These are becoming a, a lot more common. Of course, a, a break fee is where a bidder says, well, I'll make a bid for your company. But if you change your mind and recommend someone else, then I expect to be paid a fee because I've put the company in play and I've created that value. But a reverse break fee works the other way where the bidder can't proceed with the transaction because they didn't get an approval or maybe finance or some other condition, and the bidder has to pay. Uh, This is becoming a lot more common, Cam. Do you want to take us through some of the um, issues with that? Can I, Robert, can I give you some statistics to fill your Christmas Christmas stocking? So over the last year, 40% of public M&A deals have had a reverse break fee, and that is a significant increase from, say, three years ago where it was around the 20% mark. So I think reverse break fees uh, are here to stay. 
Um, there's an interesting question around quantum. What we're observing in the market at the moment is that the reverse break fee is normally equal to what the break fee is, 1% of equity value. Of course, the break fee is capped under the takeover panel's uh, rules around uh, capping the lockup devices and ensuring that um, the, these fees are not excessive to prevent competition for a target. The same theory doesn't apply in respect, respect of reverse break fees. There's no sort of limitation on competition, if you like. So strictly speaking, targets would be able to negotiate a significantly higher reverse break fee. But what we're seeing at the moment is that the, the reverse break fees we have seen in, in really the last four or five years have all been capped at around that 1% and the idea being that the fee should be reciprocal with the break fee. So really nothing else other than it's negotiating, negotiating ease really. Um, but I want to talk about the US experience on, on quantum, Robert. Um, what we've seen, what we, we see at the moment in the US is reverse break fees in the US average about 7% of equity value. Um, against about a three to four percent break fee um, on the break fee side, so uh, we have seen in the US uh, bidders start to be willing to pay a higher break fee, and uh, I think that's a, a good development for the marketplace. Um, I don't think it makes a lot of sense to to have the break fee and reverse break fee uh, equal in quantum because the risks are significantly different for a target versus a bidder. Yeah, unless you've got some condition, uh, FERB approval or something that really is outside your control, that might make people quite reluctant to do that. Um, well, of course, thank you very much for those comments. Uh, that's all we had for you today. I'd just like to finish by uh, mentioning a few of the other podcasts we've had this year. We've had podcasts about trends in takeover defences, demergers, uh, HealthScope's acquisition by Brookfield, equity-funded M&A, and an interview which Rod Levy gave with Alan Bullman, uh, the director of the Takeovers panel, in which he talked about current issues the panel's considering, how they like to operate, and why Alan likes his job. Uh, so uh, have a listen to those. There's lots of other HSF podcasts as well on other topics, and including developments elsewhere in the world, and quite a lot on the uh, Brexit uh, controversy, if people are interested in that. These are available all on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud and our website. And with that, I'd like to wish everyone a happy Christmas and we'll be back with more next year. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.